how many countdowns that do a zero. Yeah, I don't know either. You ever seen that before? No. Like when the rocket ships go blasting off, they don't say zero, do they? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, you can't really do T minus zero. <laughs> <laughs> what? Can you subtract from zero? Who else ate a whole thing of uh, Starburst before we started? You are listening to the Signal to Noise podcast on the Pro Sound Web Podcast Network. Signal to Noise is supported by Audix. Check out their new line of Pro Studio headphones, as well as the A131 and A133 large diaphragm studio condenser microphones at audixusa.com. Alan and Heath has asked us to read this. Food for thought. Is the lyric, I wish I could break free, back to where I'm supposed to be, acknowledgement of the existence of alternative universes? How else could we possibly be anywhere but where we are in fact supposed to be? Welcome back to the Signal Noise podcast on Pro Sound Web. Uh, before we start, I have two important questions from a co-host. Chris Leonard and Kyle Turnside. First of all, number one, how many chapsticks do you think are within arm's length of me right now? If Ooh. you had to guess, for you, I'm gonna Easily say accessible. six. Six. Kyle, I, over I'd under? say three, but I, but I, I definitely say one of them is a pricey one, and the rest of them are just like fallbacks. <laughs> so you're you're like actually one's a Burt's Bees, and the other ones are like dollar store or fallbacks. The answer is five. Ooh. Oh. So right and, in between. And they're all Burt's Bees except for one <laughs> chapstick brand. Well, so, you, you know something I noticed, by the way? Whoever like does the, the introduction never talks about their own name. They only mention the other people. Like I was listening back to one where I introduced. I introduced you two but never said my name. And then you just mentioned me and Kyle, but you never said your name. I think it's ironic that we take for granted that people just know who we are. So no, I think it's the opposite. I don't, I don't want to... Tell anybody who I am. <laughs> Michael Michael SPL Lawrence, thank you for joining us. <laughs> and also, I have one more question for the group, but Kyle Turnside, I'm going to let you handle it. Go ahead. Get in there. Oh, handle it? No, I like the arm's length game. Like, Okay. What, oh. All right. <laughs> I like the arm's length game. Um, what, what do you got? What's interesting near you? I, I don't know if I have anything new. Chris Leonard, first. You're first. Uh, arms oh, like what's game. interesting in, in arm's yeah. length? Yeah. Yeah. Um, damn. Now, to be fair, you're sitting in a corner and you have like nice lighting effects, and I- I'm in my office, so you- I could see because you're going for the full production value that you don't have cool stuff near you. Yeah, it's ironic <laughs> we don't actually show this video yet. I'm still have my ring light on. My he's got a fucking on, ring know. light, yo. Yeah, like he- he's complex. Wait, I have I have one too. Phenomenal. I just need to turn it on. <laughs> yes. Ryan, would you be ready I- to do an- the arm's length game? What do you have fun with? All right, all right. I, I have I have two beers within arm's length. That's that's what I have. That's fun. Good. Left arm is on a console. Okay. Yeah, right cool. arm is on a desk with six computers on it. That's Man. pretty I have stupid. Six chapsticks. You have six computers. <laughs> six laptops. Ryan, John. Yeah, six laptops. <laughs> Welcome back to the Sigmoist Podcast. I believe the fourth time. Something uh, like that. I made it. You you uh you've been kind of edging out Jim Yak for the title of our frequent flyer here. I, I kind of feel bad about that, not not because uh, you know it's not a great achievement and all, but just because I feel dumb every time I hear him speak, and I don't mean that in like a I am dumb way, but he's just so damn smart. Well, you you and, and both... he has a smooth approach to anything he says. He's Canadian. Just, he could say the most 
obscene thing. It doesn't matter. It's gonna the delivery is gonna be there. That's he, gonna make he, you think. He you're... could also tell you that your mix was complete garbage, and you wouldn't be insulted. But he would never do that. But <laughs> if he did, you would be like, "Yeah, you're totally right, man." It's totally see, right. I I usually say it intentionally in an insulting way. Just get it out there in in the like, open. So your mix is garbage. <laughs> <laughs> but usually, I actually mean it's really good. If I tell someone their mix is garbage, it, it actually means it's really good. So, what does it mean when you say you like it? Oh man, have I told you I like one of your mixes? Yeah, the most recent one I sent. You <laughs> said. Told you. So, <laughs> <laughs> Wait, hold on. Was that before, or after the check came? Um, right. <laughs> well, I mean, here's a good place to let's let's start. And and so for people who've been listening to the show, we've had Ryan on a bunch of times. We talked about mixing drums. Ladies and, and then, ladies and gentlemen, Ryan O'John. We did yeah. that already. <laughs> yeah, we did that again. We can do it again. Okay. It. And and then 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 we had Ryan back, and I believe we talked about we talked about bass. Uh, Kyle, you can intro him again for that one. Go ahead. Well, we we did, we did drums and bass on the same. Drums episode. and bass. Maybe. Was there, yeah. We did. We did vocals. We did. We no, did no. A couple. We just did drums and bass, and then we were like, "Hey, by the way, we, we need to come back and round this out, and we'll do okay. guitars." Kyle's then, new dog. Was that Ryan's dog? Nope. That was my dog. Okay. Kyle's got a dog. I got a new dog. Everybody's got dogs on this episode. Um, so today we're going to talk about guitars, I think. But I want to start with this idea of getting feedback from your peers and sending your mixes ah. to your peers. Mm. And I, I, not that I would consider either Ryan or Jim Yak one of my peers when it comes to mixing. Uh, but learn from the best, right? And, and I've, I've been sending them board mixes pretty regularly. And... Uh, I'm happy to say that I've, Non-stop. I've, I'm, uh, I'm finally getting to a place where I'm, I'm, I'm happy with, with the mixes that I'm turning out. You know, I think there's always more to improve, but I used to be like, oh man, I, I you know, when you listen back, you hate it. So I've learned a lot from, from Ryan and from Jim and, uh, and so that's cool. But I, I, I want to encourage that idea of, you know, get some feedback from your peers, uh, of what you're doing. And it may, it might not be what you're doing wrong. It might just be like what someone else would do differently. There's a lot of value in that conversation. So, uh, I want to I want to start there. Ryan, is that is that part of your process when you're working on a mix? Do you send it to your, to your buddies and, and talk about it? Oh yeah. Um, you know, it's r- right now is like a different time than usual, right? Because when when I'm working on a mix, I'm often working on it, and in the context of live mixes, right now I might be working on something in my house. At which point I can just you know print something, email it over to someone. In the context of actually working on you know a, a larger scale gig. I'll be working on it in rehearsal. And in rehearsal, I can't email to anybody. It's, well, I'm not supposed to email to anybody. (laughs) No, I'll still send it out to a couple people and just get an idea of what they feel about it. But I think one of the important things with sending your mix to people to get feedback is to be clear about what you're actually looking for. Because when someone sends me a mix and they go, you know, how does it sound? It's... It's too tough of a question to answer because I'm not there to hear all the uh, individual sources. So I can't go, well, the vocals sound nasal. Well, maybe that's actually what the guy sounds like, right? And, Mm. And that's just the context. And also, maybe that's what the artist wants. Maybe they really like that. Um... So when you've got somebody saying, you know, here's a mix I did, uh, you know, tell me what you think. Tell me what you think is a little bit too vague in general. So I much prefer when people send things to me, and I also do this when I send it to other people. I'll send it and I'll say, this is something I'm unsure of. You know, the relationship between when it goes from live bass to the key bass and back and forth, or when it hits the chorus, does it feel bigger? Things like that. And 
by showing the spots that I'm unsure of, it kind of gives someone guidance into how to answer. And also kind of once, once you've opened up the conversation there, it becomes easier to talk about the other stuff without the context of knowing the sources. Does that make sense? You know, you've kind of opened up a very clear conversation, which can lead into a vague conversation as opposed to the other way around. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I mean, there's always oftentimes, you know, someone will say, well, you know, uh, I, I would do this with the background vocals or whatever. And I, and I usually I'll often say, well, the reason I'm not doing that is this. Like I have a context that's either the artist or the gig or whatever. Maybe it's the limitations of the console I'm working on, whatever that may be. There's a reason I'm doing something a certain way that if I send that mix to you, you don't have that context. Right. Um so, you know, but I have been, like, one time I sent something to Kyle, and I said, Kyle, I'm having trouble getting the, the female lead vocal to sit in the mix. Boom. And so that automatically becomes a really productive conversation now, because he was like, oh, just bring Definitely. the high-pass filter up a little bit. Right. You know what I mean? So, um, but I don't do that with you anymore, Ryan. I just go, is this better than last week? <laughs> well, the, the thing is, the thing is, your stuff is getting better. And also, I think, and, and this works for myself and the people I send mixes to, too, is that you start to build a relationship with the people that you're sending stuff to. They also start to get an idea of what you're typically going for. They also get an idea of how you typically work. And by knowing that, I don't know, you group all your drums through this and then to this and then to this, they might also have better insight into how to potentially fix the things that they hear as incorrect. So the more they know about what you've actually done, the better they can give you feedback. Does that make sense? So once once you're in like a decent relationship with the people that you're sending this back and forth to, you can tell them less or give them less information and just get their feedback. And it, it kind of works. It is very relative. About, yeah. yeah. I mean, well, that's true. It, it's very relative, especially with working. Um, it, it's cool for you, Michael, because cover bands and, and bands playing cover tunes, you can kind of mimic the song. Right. And that's fun. It, especially like I got to do that Pink Floyd cover band over the summer and awesome. mimicking the delays and the reverb sounds and everything that would happen on the album was like something I could compare to, you know, like, so even if I was getting a mix just from the stage, from where I was standing at monitors, I could, I could feel where the songs were going. That's super cool. It's hard to do. Like Ryan said with the source. And I think that's cool because Mike, it, everyone here is like worked with different microphone technique and I think that's one right. of the things that we question a lot and I'm glad we're talking about guitars tonight because obviously that's kind of changed up too from you know a mic speaker cabinet ISO cabinets you know now into the day and age of DI lines from you know the line six all the way to the Kemper and crazy stuff going down so it, it's super relative but those changes are significant to your mix for sure yeah, in, in the world of relativity. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So I have to, actually two things that I that I've kind of been thinking about that I think are appropriate. Number one is Ryan. This is you and I have talked about this recently. Uh, I'm I'm going to phrase it as crest factor. Mm -hmm. If you look at it, an A level touring <clears throat> pop rock board mix versus a B or a C level mix or a local group. Um, the difference in crest factor and the way that compression is used to me is very striking. There's just a, a very characteristic kind of A-level touring sound that mm -hmm. you get. Um, in, more compression typically, you know, it's it, it doesn't sound super compressed, the squeezy because you have subgroups and all this stuff. But but the crest factors of those mixes are are 
quite a bit lower than you would get from kind of, I just went to go mix a local cover band in a club and that's what came off their desk. And that more than anything to me is just catches my ear as like a pro sounding board mix. And, and when I first started mixing live, I didn't like that sound. I would say uh, it's too compressed, it's too squished, and then you kind of grow, I know it took me a long time to kind of warm up to, well, that's that's sort of the texture of a modern board mix, and people like it, because when it's at, you know, 99 dBA, there's not these parts sticking out, and I think part of that is that's a very different uh, experience at show level versus, you know, on your headphones at 72 dBA, but... Um, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I, I know that I had to really kind of warm myself up to that idea. And, and now that I've gotten there, I'm definitely happier, but it was definitely a process for me. It is the same for me. Um, although it's funny because I, I still sometimes pretend, oh, I don't like the sound of, you know, your typical pop mix or whatever. But then I'm sure if I just played mine and um, had listened to that, I don't know, 10 years ago, I'd have been like, oh, it sounds like every other pop mix. But... Um, you know, what, what you're saying is true, right? And if we think about it from the context of my audience is sitting at, I don't know, 80-something, 90-something deep, and they're, they're not going to be quiet even, even when they're quiet, right? And my show, quote-unquote, max, is not going to be much more than, you know, 100, 100 and change, right? At which point I really only get 20 dB to work with um, that is actually usable volume, right? So... When it comes to the context of being able to hear everything all the time, that's all the space I really have to play with. Um, when, when you started talking about Crest Factor, I started visualizing it immediately. I, I, I visualize what the waveform looks like, right? So it's, it's kind of a sausage down the middle with all the transients poking through, and all the transients are poking through at exactly the same amount. And that's how I visualize it because I know that that's what I basically try to achieve, right? And that sausage is, you know, the guitars, the bass, the keys. It's, it's all the, the, you know, the non-transient stuff that kind of makes up the music, including the vocals. And then those transients are poking through because I can get away with, you know, the impact portion of it by just having them poke through, right? But also, all those transients are at roughly the same total level because then I don't end up, like, blasting into limiters. I don't end up, you know, doing anything uncontrollable. It's all... And the idea of being really controlled, really. Does does that make sense, or am I totally rambling out? <laughs> it makes sense. It's it's yeah, like it makes control sense. of per percussive movements. It's controlled percussion, basically. And would you say that you approach that? This maybe a, a philosophy thing here. Containing that sausage, I like this like this food reference. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're on a, Where's we're on the bun? Here. Where we're, is we're, the we're, bun? We're on a, like is is the primary function of containing the sausage your overall compression, or are you trying to contain that sausage pre master bus um, stuff that's con controlling it? Another so question, is there yeah. a there's an art to controlling it before you get to there, as opposed to saying, hey, I'm gonna do all this stuff and then and then take care of it here later. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, the, the problem there is that the master bus is also going to take down my peaks, right? All those transients, right? So if I use just the master bus compressor to kind of control the sausage that's in the middle there, then if the drummer hits harder, it's taking the, the sausage down, if you will. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's affecting things it really doesn't need to be. Right. Uh, I also find, in general, if you use one compressor to kind of do the job of many, it's usually more audible, more noticeable. Whereas if I've got a compressor on a bass group, a separate thing on a keys group, a separate thing on a vocal group, 
each one of them might have a slightly different characteristic. And even if you are using the same one everywhere, if you have different timing artifacts or whatever going on, it still won't feel like the whole thing is compressed by one compressor. And that's usually what we're hearing when we're hearing compression. We're hearing the artifact of one compressor, you know, squishing and breathing and squishing and breathing. When you spread that across many, it's much harder to tell that it's happening because uh, it's not as obvious. You don't hear the compression and the breathing and the, you know. Hi, it's so like I, hiding old drummer gates. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't have an envelope on your whole mix. Exactly. Uh, right. Is, is exactly what it is. And you know what? I don't know how Yak does it because he gets that sound and he just, all of his inputs go straight to left, right. He does not mix the subgroups typically. Yeah. And that was what I did for so long. And I just, as soon as I started going to subgroups, all of this became so much easier. And, you know, I, for whatever reason, I've never been happy with something on my main bus doing compression. I mm. always miss the transients, even if it's very, very subtle, even if it's in parallel, it just doesn't work for me. Doing it on the subgroups has been great because then it's like, the guitars stay somewhat controlled and the, you know, these elements uh, kind of have a, a bit of control to them. And even if I haven't gone in and worked on every single guitar yet, I still know that the guitars as a whole are controlled. Right. I've been getting into um, just carving out a little bit of the guitars side chain under the vocal to kind of just, you know, cut. So let's, let's do it frequency wise. Instead of putting that vocal on top, let's tuck it in. I know you're really big into the mid side yeah. uh, processing version of that. And I've been getting something that really helped me. So let's we can get into guitars now. This idea that the band I work with, they have any time three guitars plus keyboards. It might be an acoustic, two electrics, might be three electrics. So when three people are playing a distorted electric guitar, you're getting buildup at 200, 250. You get that, that resin, low muddy stuff. You get all this stuff above 8K. That stuff can really cause a pretty nasty listening experience um but i don't want to cut it there because when there's only one guitar playing or something i i want that um something that helped me was to do a multi-band compression on the guitar bus and yeah. just tuck those <clears throat> bands down and it's very it's it's a db or two it's very very slight but yeah. it just keeps the tonal balance when i have all my guys jumping in and going hard um and it's it's subtle but it's really kind of helped cement things for me so so looking at it on the bus level and looking at it on the frequency range level has been a big help in managing that yeah i mean that, that makes total sense right because when it's just one guitar you want it to be nice and full but you can't put three nice and full guitars all there at the same time and expect them not a to be sitting on top of each other but b just taking up all the space guitars are such wide bandwidth signal that i mean it's, it's basically like turning on pink noise in your mix especially if it's high gain and just turning it up um, so, you know, your approach there is, is totally dead on. And, and I mean, that's, that's what I do too. Um, except because of the tools I have available to me, I do it in a much more complicated way, you know, in a way that's probably way more complicated than 90% of people need to do. But since I can, I do. <laughs> well, you can't leave us hanging, man. You know, people are going to, let's, well, let's hear what you got going okay. on. So, well, when you design your own console, <laughs> yes. uh, oh, wait, sorry. <laughs> Start by designing your own console, and then once you do that, you'll have all the tools you need. <laughs> no, um, so I guess if we start from from building the mix, period, um, I, I typically try to build the mix from the most important things to the least important things, right? And to me, you know, kick and snare and bass, that is the foundation of a live show, period. 
and in my opinion, that's just what it is, right? Uh, well, maybe in different genres, it won't matter, but in, in pop, rock, and all that, that's kind of the foundation. So I pull those in first. Anything I bring in after that, I bring in in the order of how important I think it is to that show or to that song, right? So the next thing I might bring in, in the context of the artists I typically work for, would be vocals, because she's important, really important. And because I brought her in without a bunch of other elements, I have the whole sonic spectrum to play with, the whole thing. And I can make her sound giant, and it's not going to sit on top of other stuff, right? Then if I bring in, let's say, guitar is the next most important thing. If I bring it in now, and I don't bring it in soloed, I bring it in with everything else on, I know how much space there is left, and I can choose to make this guitar take up as much space as is available without sitting on the things that are already there, right? Because those things are obviously, I've decided, are more important than the guitar. And then as you bring in more and more and more things, there's less and less space available in the mix, right? And that's acceptable because you've decided that they're less important, right? So, you know, when I finally bring in that tambourine mic or, you know, the chimes mic or whatever, the fact that I have to mix it to be really thin to not sit on other stuff is kind of okay because I've decided it's not important. So, you know, from a base, base level, that makes sense, right? Yeah. Um, and that means, you know, you're not soloing stuff pretty much ever unless you have to go in and find some problem. But, you know, by building the mix without soloing and building from most important to least important, in theory, you never end up sitting important stuff behind less important stuff. All right. So take that into context first, and then we'll jump into how, how I do this stupid guitar thing, right? So... I go between doing, I don't know, rock metal bands and stuff here and there and full-on pop. And obviously the intent is really different between those two. And one of those rock bands I do with also has three guitar players, kind of in the same way you just described. And any of two of them might be playing rhythm at the same time. The third one might be playing a lead. And then it might swap to a different two of them doing rhythm and then a different one doing lead. Which means you can't even really get away with panning one left, one center, one right. Because now rhythm might be left and center and lead will be on the right, or, you know, it might be the other way around, and it gets really, really complicated and kind of messy. So, enter the really complicated workflow. So, <laughs> you know how you mentioned that I like doing this mid-side sidechain thing? So, what I, since guitars are so intrusive and they're so big, I always put a compressor on them, a multi-band or dynamic EQ, actually it's technically a dynamic EQ that I use. And that dynamic EQ gets fed by whatever I think is more important than that guitar at any given time. So in the context of a normal gig, that guitar might be sitting there, and then there's a vocal that's feeding the dynamic EQ that's on the guitar, right? So that when the vocal sings, it starts cutting something out of the guitar to make space for the vocal. That's not super complicated. That's kind of normal. But where the workflow gets really complicated is when it gets dynamic, meaning... Now I have a keyboard solo, and I push my keyboard fader up. When my keyboard fader goes up past plus three, that starts feeding the side chains for everything else. So now the keyboard is cutting space out of the guitar in order for the keyboard to be the lead, right? And then when I pull the keyboard back down, it goes back to the vocal being the thing. When I push the guitar up, it starts cutting side chain out of the keyboard, so that now the keyboard has stuff carved out so that the guitar's on top. And I've got this kind of set up in a weird way using, you know, events slash macros, whatever you want to call it, um, so that whichever guitar is most important, when I push it up, it takes out of the other two guitars. Does that make oh. sense? 
I mean, it, I know it's really complicated to set it up, but it, Kyle likes it. It's neat. I like it a lot. <laughs> well, Kyle, I, as I'm listening to Ryan explain this, you were out doing, you know, one of the most guitar-driven bands and that comes to mind in recent i mean fallout boy is like you know it's one of those everything's bigger than everything else bands right yep. like the vocals got to be huge the drums got to be huge the those, guitars got to be huge those tricks so you're were dealing... so 2010 michael <laughs> well <laughs> i, I want to ask uh ryan one thing and i'll explain some you're asking but your movements are tiny though you said 3db so you're barely moving faders do you do it from like a vca section or what section do you do your fader moves from Oh, it kind of depends. Um, so if it's in the context of, of my pop gig, um, yes. it's actually usually the individual faders. And my, my, my VCAs are kind of for overall um, overall general stuff. You know, if I need guitars as a whole up or, you know, keys as a whole up or down or whatever, I kind of treat them there. But when it comes to the context of things like little solo moments... That's the individual channel that I'll take up and back down or, you know, another individual channel I'll take up and back down. But, yeah, I mean, you're right. Um, I always say I know a mix is right when if I make a 1 dB change, you can actually hear it. Correct. Um, yeah. So moves, yeah. tiny moves. When, when you look at my snapshots across the show, you, you kind of snap through them. It's maybe a dB and a half, 2 dB up, down, here and there across all these channels. It's not crazy, crazy amounts of changes. But So you're keeping your gain structure pretty even with your dynamic on the end of it. So it, yeah, it makes super cool so sense. It, think, think about <laughs> it this way, right? If I take my guitar and I bump it, I don't know, 3 dB, right? I've, I've bumped the guitar by 3 dB, pretty simple. But if by doing that, I also take 3 dB out of the keyboard's mid-range, oh, yeah. effectively I've bumped the guitar by 6 dB in the mid-range. I mean, not literally, but you know what I mean? Yes. You know, and, you've made and, space and, for 6 dB of guitar. And without explaining your transients, you just explained your transients. Yes. <laughs> so so that, that was going to be my second question for sure. Well, Kyle, I want to know how you approach this with the rack of analog stuff. Because you don't have all of these automation <clears throat> tools. and I Yeah. Mean, you know yeah. what I mean? That's a, that's a whole different thing. AKA, hey, old guy. I used to have an about... XL4. Because because you're you're chasing that super produced polished studio sound, but yeah. you know you don't have you know nowadays room. you can you can pretty much do that on a on a live console, but you couldn't at the time. So how did you handle that? Uh, it was crazy with Fall Out Boy. So I'll I'll talk about a different band first. So I did uh, Time, <laughs> Times of Grace, which was Adam D and Joel from Killswitch Engage. With those dudes playing together is insane. And if you've ever been to Europe and been to a metal show, saw like At the Gates, The Haunted, like any crazy German metal band, like guitars are the thing. So what Ryan's yeah. talking about here could help out the metal world immensely because the guitars are the things. Think Iron Maiden, you know, dueling solos. Like that would be huge using this parallel <coughs> compression against, you know, vocals i would just the only and that's why i wanted to get back to the transient thing because a lot of those things are attack driven yeah. and and your moves even though they're so slight they still have to be attack driven and that's where i wanted to get back to the transient bit because the impact is something that never translates to your recording you know you you might have a little here and there and, and that's the sausage with the points but when you're mixing the transient is like the move part um, 
you know, you're moving that fader for a reason. <coughs> so I used to do this with Fall Out Boy. Um, I definitely subgrouped their guitars. They ran back and forth. So <laughs> same thing, like Ryan said, you couldn't do a hard pan at all. At all. Like, it would just be too much chasing. So you would find a good image from them. I used two microphones. I used one condenser mic and one dynamic mic. Um, I'd find spots on them. Each guitar had two microphones. Then we switched to, <coughs> holy cow, red boxes. Remember red boxes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Using Kettner yeah. red boxes. Using Kettner box, yeah. And then we finally got PGAs. Uh, mm -hmm. and 09s. 09s. And then yeah. that was cool because the dudes could choose their own head. And that was, and it was load bearing, so you could switch it between the ohm rating, which is huge for us. Like you, if you want to screw your day up, switch the ohm rating on a guitar and put your mic in the same place that you had it yesterday. It's like, it's ridiculous. And you'll chase chase your tail for a while until you figure it out. Um, and then in the group, I would put this was my secret sauce because the kids would jump and they'd pull their their strings when they land. So every time. Mm -hmm think about sure we're going down <coughs> boom boom it's all whole please notes, tell me you right? put a pitch effect on it <laughs> here goes yeah so, yeah nice and soft <laughs> i know i know this trick <laughs> so i had uh spx 990 with a nice voice the voice one but i'd go in and set the parameters to be zeros or negative ones or ne positive ones depending on the microphones themselves so and it would take the bend away and set the delay up a little bit. So it'd take the bend out of the mix and keep the transients because those hits were the reason of that song. You know, it's kind of like, I think Green Day, like you got to. And um, then I had a distressor on that group as well. So that that <laughs> was the chain um, yeah. for them, just because I could play around. The distressor was a little bit too much and sometimes it would take transients away. But I noticed on the group, instead of the channels, I could keep the impact of the XL4 sound and drive those gains in. So by the time I got to the group, it was just like the secret sauce. You know, it, it kind of made stuff sit at a nice level without peril, without compression tools that Ryan's talking about. I, I my vocals would sit correctly then finally, mm -hmm. yeah. and and you could feel it and and the movement was the same it was one to two db and you could hear it you know and you could feel the impact in the move it was crazy like once you got it set gain structure wise those transients still blasted one thing that i i'm spoiled by and i i think i would have trouble mixing without now is this new wonderful thing where every compressor has a mix control we can do wet dry <laughs> you know parallel yeah. compression used to be like let me set up two buses and like it's just a knob now. And, and you know, it's great that our consoles have gotten to the point where they're, they're managing what they need to manage under the hood in order to do that without causing chaos. Um, but that is a nice way to get that control without, you know, my ear, I guess I'm just really sensitive to, I find objectionable the, the transient loss. Um, yeah. it, it, it bothers me. So using the parallel compression, I get that control, but I'm not giving up my, my peaks. And I, I am using way more compression in terms of what the gain reduction meter is doing. I'm using way more now that I can use it in parallel and I'm keeping my peaks there. But I'm just bringing it, you're basically, you're just bringing up that RMS level a little bit. So you kind of, it feels bigger, but it doesn't feel squashed. And that's, that's been a big help too. Let's talk about yeah. the bandwidth squashing though too. And I want to hear 
Chris Leonard and Ryan talk about that. When do you know you've chose the wrong tool to do the job, especially with like frequency compression? And when do you swap to like a different form of dynamic to fix the problem? Like, what do you look for in your dynamic? Well, actually, in the same vein, I, I was you had mentioned um, um, distressors, right? You mentioned yeah. distressors, right? Last chain, right? So distressors are phenomenal. And one of the things I was prepared to talk about tonight was, um, you know, they had the whole like, you know, harmonic distortion stuff you could do within the distressor, yes. right? <laughs> so I'm curious from a, I don't know what the right word is, ethical or whatever, or whatever choices of like, okay, you're now making choices different than what the guitar player had intended possibly in terms of what their tone and what their stuff is. So where is the discussion, right place, right time to do those decisions? Um, so that, I don't know, Ryan or, or uh, Kyle, have you run into that where you're doing something where you kind of altered the tone? Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. is that okay? Where, <laughs> where does, you know, what what's that look like? I'll, I'll revert to Ryan on this, but same kind of thing. I put the most important thing up here. You know what I mean? The most important thing has to be the thing. And then the secret stuff on the bottom has to, I mean, it goes to the polish in the turd thing. Like you can't rub too hard. You smeared everybody. Everyone will notice, you know? So <laughs> you, you, you got to finagle it, man. Are we still talking about sausage? Oh, sorry. I'm not sure I've ever heard someone. I'm not sure I've ever heard someone turn polishing a turd into smearing it. Everywhere. Yeah. Is that, is that the part? It's gotta be a new thing. Yeah. yeah. I'm old. <laughs> I might be wearing adult diapers. You never know. Well, all right, Chris, what comes to mind to me is, you know, the same thing with that conversation that we've all had with a bass player or a guitar player where you're like, yes, I know what you're saying, but what, you know, how this sounds soloed is way different than how it's going to sound when it's seated in the mix, right? That's why I have, you know, double passion <coughs> acoustic guitar for my lead singer because how I have to EQ her guitar to get it to sound great in the mix sounds terrible in her ears when there's nothing else in her ears, right? So, right. To me, I think we're talking about the final product. And is the artist happy with the final product? And if I have to do whatever I have to do to get to that final product, that's great. Um, I would never solo up a channel and say, hey, do you like your guitar tone? Because it's not meant to be enjoyed in that context. It probably won't sound good. Right. Right? If they don't like the final product, that's a conversation that we have and and that that I do have with my artists. And how are we going to handle different things differently and how things are sitting? But to me... Uh, it's not always, pr- it's sort of like when you start a mix, you just did a recording studio session and you start a mix. I don't want the artist to sit next to me at that point. Not till you're 90% of the way through. Right. right? I need to go <laughs> in and like clean up all the, you know, and, and so they're, you know, Give me a minute. You, oh, the kick doesn't hit yet. Well, it, yeah, of course it doesn't, you know, I'm still, we're getting there. So I am thinking in my head of where this is going and what I need to do to get to where I, I wanted to go. And then we can talk about that. But, you know, if you hear it in progress and you don't have the context of where it's going to go, that's not productive for me. Well, so, well, yeah, that's what well, I would say. Also, let, let's be serious, right? Right right now, we are in probably the best technological age we've ever had for doing this kind of stuff, right? I can actually say, guitar player, come sit next to me and let's go through this. Mm-hmm. And we can virtual sound check and he can play along. And if if... The guitar player wants to change something tonally. We can work on it together while sitting right next to each other. Or, and this has happened a bunch of times, 
I've invited the guitar player out and I say, hey, when you hit the solo for this section, it sounds crazy. It doesn't work for me. And he can sit next to me and listen to the actual whole mix in the mm-hmm. context and go, oh, yeah, you're right. That doesn't really sound like what I wanted it to. Is there anything you can do? That's, that's usually what they ask me. They go, is there anything I can do? And I say, yeah, I could fix it for that moment, but then it's just going to be complicated to go back and forth between your settings. But yeah. if you already have this on a solo button, then let's just sit and deal with it, right? Now, one of the other places where this becomes problematic, right, is that now with everyone switching over to Axe Effects, Kempers, Line 6s and stuff, people are building their tones in their bedroom or on headphones, and then they're coming to the show going, I spent hours on this. It's perfect. And then I listen to it through a PA and I'm like, this sounds like it was built on headphones. It sounds like sausage. <laughs> or, or the, or the dip. <laughs> sounds like smeared. No, this, this goes back to the original thing of, you know, there's a reason why you don't solo that input in the PA because it has right. to fit with everything else. And so if they've spent so much time narrowly focused on this one thing and not in the context of the rest right. of the of yeah. the the band there you go it's going to be so the, now, same, context, the same thing. context is a magic word but there is yeah, still a middle ground there too though because they need to hear it in their ears full and clear so that they can play well right i need to hear it in the context of the mix maybe thinner maybe smaller so it sits behind other stuff yeah. there is some spot to balance there where it's clear for them and i can cut out the one or two things i need to make it work you know yeah, I, I have a question that goes kind of along with that. Kyle, you don't have to so, raise your hand, man. You're on. You're on. I know, your host. But that, <laughs> what does Ryan has to raise his hand now? Ryan, we please raise your hand when you want to answer. <laughs> um, so we're being very do, polite how, here. <laughs> how how often do you work with the guitar tech? Because um, I I always get the experience like the guitar tech is the dude when it comes to this new amp emulation, and obviously they have sat with their guy and went through the sounds too. And when you get to a live situation, hey, you switching from that clean to this tone or back and forth is kind of bad. I mean, sitting, the guitar tech has to be super knowledgeable about those emulations to program any kind of foot pedal. Like it's almost becoming like that's the, the tech job now. And I see a lot of guitar techs doing like the Ableton tracks for the guitar. So you're getting this recorded or um, pre-done track. Oh, we did it in the studio on headphones um, style thing. Do you do you deal a lot with your techs when it comes to rehearsals and stuff with that and, well, and the tracking? Well, well, let's be serious. I get a hundred times more time with my guitar tech than I do with the actual yeah. artist, oh, sure. right? So, you know, I might, I might get a 10-hour day of rehearsal with, with the tech, and the artist might be there for an hour, hour and a half, right? So if we go through a full day, or even, even if we're in the middle of a tour and we go through shows, and I maybe wrote down a few notes. When we hit this song, this thing's crazy. When we hit this song, this doesn't work. Realistically, the person I can actually get that fixed with is the tech. I can sit with them and say, hey, when we hit this song, uh, what patch are you using or what setting are you using? Is it a patch that's used in other songs as well? Okay, it's not. It's unique to this. Is there something we can do to change it? This is the problem I have. 99% of the time, they're on board with making this change. And at that point, it's, it's a little bit on them to tell the guitar player, but it's also just as much on me to tell the guitar player because I'm the one who asked for this change. Mm-hmm. Now, will the guitar player notice it? depending on what the change is. Maybe they won't. Maybe they won't hear it at all. And maybe it's just something subtle enough that like it fixes everything for me, but in the context of all the energy and all that of the show, they will never notice it. But, you know, in, in, in trans, you know, for transparency's sake, I would rather tell them, hey, man, we changed something in your patch than them come to me and go, why the hell was that patch screwed up? 
Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. So what let's about the put recorded this in the context. Oh, sorry, Kyle, go ahead. Then what about the recorded stuff when you get like Ableton tracks or any kind of playback tracks that are guitar and recorded? Oh, man. I mean, that's it's a tough one because that's like such a political answer, right? Because as much as I might be like these... De- and typically the problem there is that the gain is way too hot on the recorded tracks, right? They just turn the gain up all the way and it just you can't really tell the notes. That's typically what seems to happen when you get bad recorded tracks. So there's the political problem there, right? Because I want to say, hey, you need to re-record this. But when I say that, the guitar player goes, what do you mean I need to record it? It sounded perfect at home. And then it makes it look like I'm I'm <laughs> not able to make it work, right? <laughs> but, you know, recorded tracks are problematic mostly because oftentimes the recorded tracks are also being doubled by the live player. Hmm. If the recorded tracks are something that's happening and nobody on stage is also playing it, you know, in the context of guitar, then I'm kind of more okay with them sounding a little bit crazy. I'll, I'll hack them and make it work. But if the recorded tracks are also being played by the live player, if we're in a spot where I can't be politically friendly in saying this needs to be redone or whatnot, I'm just going to take the fader and pull it down. So when we get to that spot, that fader is going to sit at minus 12 and the guitar player is going to be live. Or if the guitar player is terrible and the recorded track's great, we're going to do the other way around. But, you know, hopefully that's not the case, right? Don't give up the ghost. But so, you, you just can't have both going at the same time all right. the time. It just makes a mess, you know? And I know Chris wants to talk more about uh, this trend of going to isocabs and going to cab sims. And um, and I kind of want to tie that in with, with the other end of the spectrum where we're not talking about dealing with the tech, but I want to talk about worship band how's a worship band mm-hmm. right the guitar player in that situation or you know like the local band that i work with that conversation about we both agree that we want to make a change to this sound is this something i should be doing at the mix is this something that you can do at your at your pedal your playing your mic placement your amp settings you know where in this signal chain we have a lot of opportunities here where we could make decisions and make yeah. changes where should that happen? And I think the ISO cab versus mic amp versus sim falls right into that conversation as well, Chris. Yeah, yeah, for, yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, in in the at least in the house of worship market, thankfully, um, for a long time, the concept of ISO cab or emulation has been a thing because stage volume is yeah. in in most house of worships are the most critical thing that you can do when you're at like a 400, 200 cap seat room and yet trying to have full on, you know, mm-hmm. band. I mean, it's, it's the decisions that make everything, but then, yeah, it's, you know, the, I, I'm, <laughs> people will debate all day long on the whole emulation thing and whether ISO cab this, that, and the other, at the end of the day, the people that care the most, the people that are on stage, let's be honest, you know? Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm all for, I mean, I, I remember when one of the guys at the church I mixes at, when he started uh, having a Kemper a couple of years ago and we did full stereo and pan hard left and right. It was the biggest guitar sound I've ever heard in my life. Like that the sounds that can come out of a properly programmed stereo Kemper are ridiculous. Um, and, uh, and, and to that degree, I, I think, um, I don't care what you argue, you can't create that from a live caps. I guess you could, but it just, it just wouldn't be quite be the same. Well, you know, you know, I've done that where we use multiple cabs, <laughs> multiple mics on each cab and we tried to get the same sound and it is possible. It's just so incredibly hard to be consistent every day. 
in every right. new city. And I mean, you move a mic a half an inch and everything changes, right? And we can label the cabs with, with tape and all that and mark them up, but it's still going to be different every day. So I'm not, I'm not anti-Kemper or anti-Amp you know, amp Sim, especially not anymore. The quality of these things have actually gotten really good. I remember there was some point in time where we actually had it running through both and we did AB and I asked the band, tell me which one's which. And I played them like AB of like, like five or six different songs. I had it on multiple faders. So it was really easy to do it. They, they couldn't call it. At which point, you know, flying to you know, Europe and getting the exact same spec head and cab and all that versus throwing a Kemper and a Peli and flying, of course we're going to take the Kemper, you know? So besides the, the uh, shall we say, the, the consistency factor that you're talking about, Ryan, there, there's sort of a hidden variable for me that, you know, the band I'm working with, we're in tiny little rooms and there's, everyone's kind of on top of each other on stage. My vocal mics are effectively drum overheads at that point. Right. Um, so for me, it was not even a conversation just about can we get the same tone with, with an amp sim. It was I've eliminated sources of loud crap on the stage that are blowing into my vocal mics. And so that took my vocal mixing out of damage control mode. And I was actually able to like do nice, creative. Yeah. yeah, do nice things. And, <laughs> and so I sat the band down and I soloed up our, our vocal mic. And I said, do you, you know, I can't do much with this because there's just everything. It's everything's in everything. So getting that isolation was when we were able to start crafting the mix that the artist really wanted to have and get that sound. And we, you know, if you play guitar, you know, we had to do a lot of work to sort of get back to the tonal place that we were at with mm -hmm. hot tubes and feeding back and right. Like there's something very, um, just there, there's a very visceral thing about a, a tar amp that's cranked up really loud and you're standing in front of it and that reacts differently with the player than, than, a, than a DI box does, right? But after we did all the work to get sort of back in that direction, and I'm not saying it's the same, but, you know, we, we got back to the point where they were happy with the way they sounded, the mixes were so, so, so much cleaner because yeah. I didn't have all this stuff going <clears> to <throat> my mic. So, so for me, isolation is a major factor, and, I, and it's something that you don't think about. So, Chris, you mix at a church. Do you, are you using... Amps? Are you using Sims? Are you using ISO cabs? How are you, how do you handle that typically? Yeah, it's been a mix. Um, primarily been um, Sims. It really depends on the player. I think the um, through the years uh, recently they're using um, these. Uh, I forget which heads they are, but they actually have tubes, so there's some wit some amount of analog niche to them, but not <laughs> you know not still not miking an amp. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So it's been that's been my experience for the last couple of years at least. It's been I haven't, I haven't liked an amp there for a couple of years. Do you have a regular band or do you have new members? Because part of this to me is when I have a different guitar player every week, that that's crazy, you know? Yeah, no, it's what for our scenario, it's not one band. There's probably four different guitar players, four different drummers. And it's not like so you're a, like a B, Broadway C. pit, basically. Well, yeah, it's not like it's not like an A band, B band, C band. It's like this guy playing with this guy with this guy. It all depends on a schedule dependent. Mm -hmm. So it's right. kind of fun because you get this melding of you know uh, of, of people, but yes, the inputs the same. Um, the tones are still kind of unique to the players again because it still comes from their guitar. 
you know, still come from their physical hands. You know, like it's the old joke I heard a guitar player say one time or tell me a story. It's like, uh, you know, he's playing a guitar and a guy comes up to him. It's like, oh, man, a guitar sounds amazing. He's like, oh, yeah, holds it out. He's like, how's the sound now? You know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, uh, it, it, it's the player, not the guitar. But anyway, um, so it's there's joke. definitely still. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right up your alley, Chris. Um, actually, I, well, along the same lines, I, I, I probably have told this before, but, um, there's a, a, a similar bass joke of, uh, this monitor guy told me, uh, this, uh, bass player was, uh, just giving him shit the whole time, you know, on stage, like, Hey, you know, like this, this doesn't sound good. This doesn't sound good. Finally, the bass player like takes his, his bass guitar, stabs it into the stage wedge. <laughs> right. And so the, the monitor guy comes walking out on the stage and, uh, he's like, uh, I see what the problem is here. I was like, oh yeah. He's like, yeah. He's like, you got too much bass in your wedge. Uh, <laughs> so after after the Ryan O'John Day calendar comes out, we'll do a Chris Leonard dad jokes take. Oh my god, <laughs> amazing! And shout out to Carter, Carter Hasselbrook, by the way. He's got a dad jokes calendar, and <laughs> once a week I'll get it. It's, he's got a group text with me and Jim Yak, and he'll send us the the terrible joke. And uh, so shout out to Carter for for sticking yeah. to his guns on that. <laughs> but. So to, for uh, for us in our scenario, the two biggest things I think the number one thing is stage volume. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sta- it just it, that's what it is: stage volume and then consistency. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that that's that's what outweighs it over. You know, getting your rocks off on whether you have an amp or not, this, that, and the right. other. You know, Ooh, so well, well, you know, you know some of the some of what made a loud blaring amp feel and sound so good was this crazy smear of it showing up in every single microphone on stage, right? And when you put the PA on and you turn up all these mics, your guitar sounds massive. And it's because it's in every microphone. It's kind of just, you know, it, yeah, yeah, it's phase problems. Yeah, it's all this stuff. But at the same time, it's almost doing the same thing as taking a harmonic saturator and throwing it on a channel. Yeah. Because you're kind of duplicating it in many ways. You're kind of adding all this harmonic, all this crap. And when you go to amp sims, a lot of that goes away. And that's when people hear an amp sim and go, this sounds small, right? And it's not actually that it sounds small on its own, because if you pulled up that blazing amp with just the 57 in front of it, it's not going to sound bigger. It's once it's got all this other bleed kind of merged into it that it sounds massive, right? Yeah. But I think the other advantage here that amp sims give is on a local small club scene level... We can finally move away from damage control mixing to right. actually mixing, right? That, that's what I hated most about the small club scene um, is that I couldn't stand working in that environment because it's like I'm not mixing. I'm doing damage control. I'm at my best trying to, you know, because you're, you know, mix position shit. is 20 feet away from a guitar cab. <laughs> Kyle loves know. that. I know Kyle, Kyle loves, loves these chaos shows. <laughs> ah, but it's, it's not mixing. It's just not. Because See, the thing is, it, thing is though, that, that's not just a small club problem, right? Because no. even on an arena level, I get just as much of that guitar in the guitar player's backing vocal mic, right? Yep. And the thing is, of course the guitar backing vocal is quiet as all hell because he's, he's, he's a terrible singer and he's trying to be quiet, right? So Absolutely. I have to turn it up. And thus, it just destroys the guitar sound for me to turn it up. So even in that context, it's damage control for that backing vocal for me, you know. And by the way, Kyle, I didn't mean to be like a like I'm better than a club scene. That's not what that's no, about. No, no. I just, I, I just like oh, Kyle the, loves I, the, the I just, just like chaos, the shit getting knocked over. He gets really excited about that. that. I get super <laughs> excited. Like 
it, it it's crazy that you call it damage control because I love dealing with that damage control. It's like Matt Sound Lawrence <laughs> said on on one of the last shows. He was like, "I miss sound pressure. I miss sound pressure pummeling my yeah. body. Yeah, like I miss it. it." And and I think that's that's the thing about the impact recreating that at an arena level is a lot harder than it is to do it in a you know a fifty to like you said house of worship in a four hundred to five hundred seat sanctuary is hard to mix because that's hard damage control because you're trying to get vocals right. where they need to be people following <clears throat> lyrics on the screen with the vocals you're dealing with screaming leslie's and amps all over the place right wow yeah and we're not ta- i know we're not talking about drums here but like so in in my house of worship building that i work in the number one thing that sets the level is the drums, the acoustic yep. level, the drums in that venue, you've now set a bar of where you have to be. And, and so Everything that's why build so many, around it. Yeah. That's why so many churches do the, 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 the fish tank or the drum shields and stuff, because <laughs> if, if you want to be able to manage around that, um, you have to do something about it. And so that was the, we used to meet in this, um, like a high school or middle school, um, auditorium, you know, and just, was, it, was it a gymatorium? Or just an auditorium, It was it was it was a regular auditorium. Okay. Um, but like the acoustic level, the drums set the stage for the day, right. you know. And um, whereas I think at least in an arena, larger theater, you know, stadium and stuff, outdoor stuff, obviously you, you get away without that without that barrier. When you're in a smaller right. club, church, whatever, that acoustic level sets. So same thing, your guitar cab on stage is now going to dictate where your vocal has to be. So your vocal now quite possibly has to be at a very uncomfortable level just because you're trying to get over the stage vibe. And that's why I go back to that like, you know, damage control thing and consistency and um so And when and when we jump into the concept of coverage, that guitar cab level is destroying the first few rows they're not going to hear like, anything like about that it's like a fucking laser beam right. though there's like three yeah. people getting hit in the face with it and then yeah. if you go to those side, three are nothing. dead yeah <laughs> those three are simply dead right and then if your mix position is in the, is is in the firing line you're you're not going to be able to judge at all and you're right. going to mix hot for that vocal right and then when you go anywhere else in the venue they're going to be like i don't hear any guitar cuz you've turned it down and they're going to go, the vocal's way too hot. What the hell is going on? Mm-hmm. Even a lot of right, local yeah. bands now are, are catching on. If they yeah. do emulation and ears uh, the cheap way, you know, get an M32 or an X32 rack and, and an ear rig, they're winning right now because, like, they come in and sound better than anyone that played all night long. I think it's, like, something that we really have to try to gravitate to, you know? It does make the mix sound amazing. Like that's all you have to do to win. Like if you there's three bands on the bill and everyone's got backline besides you, you won. Yeah. And you know what I'll say? My artists are more comfortable and happier, and they actually enjoy playing out now, because they're they're in their sixties. So getting pummeled in the face in a small venue by these fucking wedges and <laughs> they can't hear anything, like that sucks, man. And and it's fatiguing. And you do three hours like that, and you're you're done. And I can only imagine being older, having some hearing loss. That's just an unpleasant situation. Yeah. Um, so but, they're comfortable now. Um, I mean, that, I, they're spoiled now. They've got their little SQU, whatever it is, app where they can they can turn up their own guitar and <laughs> shit in their mix, and they don't have to ask me for it. I mean, they they actually enjoy going out to play, and they're not destroyed the next day, and they're not blowing their voices out, and their ears aren't ringing. And so, I mean, there's just it's just a better, healthier even environment now that that you're talking about, Kyle. 
Yeah, so totally. Let, let's let's go back to real cabs, though. So let's <laughs> let's talk about you know your approach on real cabs. Um, let's go non ISO first. Um, what are some of the considerations you take? Simple. So single microphone. Um, you know, how are you? Do you have a go to spot on the cone? Or are you always checking listening? And then ramp it up to when do you maybe go like two mics and we're doing dynamic condenser? Like, what's your what's that path there? So, first of all, if I can, I'm going to point it anywhere except for directly at the audience, <laughs> right? No, I don't even mean you know not pointing it at me. Um, I've done a Wait, few we, gigs. We talk on the microphone or the cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> the cab. Um, in a, in a few gigs I've done, we've we've had so that the guitar cabs are on the stage left and stage right wing pointing across the stage, which is awesome because then the guitar player still gets all the feel of the energy of the cabinet, but it's not blasting into their microphone, it's not blasting in front of house, and it's not killing like the first row, right? So that's great. Obviously, it still blasts at the drums and blasts at other stuff, so it's not, not ideal, but that helps a lot. Um, if you're in a spot where uh, you don't have a low ceiling, one of those little kickbacks on the amp, so it's pointing up at 30 degrees, makes a huge difference. Again, it's not pointed at the first row, it's not pointed at your mix position, and it's not um, pointed at you know a, a backing vocal vocal mic or whatnot. But you still get some of that low low mid and low end, so you can still feel it as a guitar player. And if you want to get that feedback, you can still walk right up to it, and you get the ringing out, and you have all of that. So if you're going to go cab, first of all, Try not to point it straight at your first row. But then, you know, when it comes to miking it, um, I pretty much start with two mics. Um, I, 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 it's just kind of a thing. Like a, a long time ago, I'm sure I put a 57 on a cab. And at some point in my life, I think I might have been happy with that. I don't know when that point was because now when I put a 57 on a cab, I think it just it's missing so much, right? I do typically have a starting point, And that starting point is, you know, right on the edge of the dust cap, you know, just, just, you got the dust caps, you know, the little circle in the middle, right, about, you know, two inches across, I guess, on a 10-inch or 12-inch speaker, so right on the edge of that, and as much as I like to pretend that I'm going to stick my ear there and listen to this guitar and move my ear around, <laughs> I'm not, because at the volume most of these dudes are playing, I'm not willing to give up 80% of my, my night's hearing in those 30 seconds, it's just not worth Dang. it. I do it. I stick on the cabs. <laughs> I used to. I used guilty. to. Guilty. But but now I'll start at that position, and if it, I'm fortunate at this point, I know roughly what it's going to sound like as I move it to the outer edge, or as I angle it towards the outer edge, or angle it inwards. And by knowing that, if I start at that position, I can just ask you know a stagehand or my monitor tag or anyone like that, or even the guitar player. Hey man, can you just slide that an inch to the right? Or, hey, can you just turn it a little bit to the right? So, yeah, I do typically start with two mics, but it's not its not only because the tone of one mic isn't enough, but it's also because I like the control of having multiple faders. And if I can control my tone by moving faders up and down, it's way better and way easier than controlling my tone by changing EQs. So, the two mics thing, if I'm going to use it as one guitar player pan to one place. Let's just pretend it's just one guitar player here and they're, they're, they're going to be panned into the same place and I want to kind of sum these two mics. One of them, I might make a little bit more scooped sounding of a microphone. The other one, I might make a little bit more mid-range heavy sounding of a microphone, right? And this way, when that guitar player is in kind of rhythm mode and sitting behind other stuff, I can pull down that mid-range one and I basically get a little bit of a scoop EQ. 
So now that guitar player is sitting behind other things that are playing. When that guitar player has a solo, I can take that mid-range EQ'd mic and bump it up a touch, and now that guitar cuts really well. Now, it's, it's funny when, when Kyle, you were, you were mentioning how you deal with this in analog. This is exactly how I dealt with it in analog. I kind of have these two tonal concepts for any given guitar player, so I could kind of you know, get away with making them forward or backwards by moving yeah. a fader. So this is semantics question here. How do you label them, and how do you know which one you've done the higher mid boost cut thing? Uh, do you have a, 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 a system that you do that with? So I always make the first one on my, on my desk the kind of scooped one, and the second one, the mid-range boost. Now, so it doesn't matter the type of mic, it's just the first second? Well, well does that, does that go into mic this, placement? This, this is where it gets kind of, kind of funny, because normally I'd use a dynamic and a condenser. And usually the dynamic to me sounds better with the scoop. Um, yep. Actually, that's not always true. It actually totally depends on which mic. But I know there's been scenarios where the condenser or whatever sounded better with the scoop or it's a dynamic and a ribbon, and the ribbon sounded better with the scoop, or whatever it may be, I literally have switched the input patch so that the first one was the scoop one, because I don't want to have to think about it when I go to it. I just want to grab the second one and bump it up, because a solo is happening that maybe I didn't know was going to happen. I can't be spending the time to think about it, you know? But uh, in imaging, too. So I, I did yeah. uh, Portugal the Man on the mountain and the cloud tour and he played one of those big open hollow body things so we got him to scoot around his twin kick it back at him a little um the other guy played a twin and those are always good because then you can just kick them back and get them out of your your face <clears throat> a lot of people would mic those from the back too and i hate doing that mm -hmm. i really do uh it just gets a little bit too woofy but i always labeled mine dynamic condenser or one and two and i always knew i put my dynamic first that's exactly um, what I did too. Yeah, and, dynamic is always I, first. I found myself, if I moved one mic, I had to move them both. So what I did is I lined mm -hmm. up elements and put them together as close as I could. And then I'd be like, hey, could you go out and move that to the right a little bit? And you do find sweet spots because you'll mm -hmm. hear it in the PA like almost, uh, almost like a little phasing, like you were EQing through it if, once you hit the sweet spot. And... My idea was I need to make my loudspeaker sound like the loudspeaker on stage. It, there can't be a distance mm -hmm. between it. And that's what both the mics did for mm -hmm. me. It brought the sound to the speaker and not from a speaker to a microphone to a console. Like there was, it felt like yeah. that was the guitar cabinet up in the air. Yeah. You know, uh, I got ruined when companies started making dual element kick drum microphones. Oh no! Where they'd make those kick mics with the condenser uh, and the dynamic in it, like the the Audio Technica mic. Yeah, twenty five hundred like AE twenty five hundred, and I where switched lost all my guitars to that. <laughs> yep, and I, I still have like five or six of those spare cables because I bought extras just in case. Same. Always lose that but cable. I actually never liked that mic on a kick drum. I just didn't Ever. think it was that great, but. Very. There were two elements, a condenser and a dynamic, and they were perfectly aligned. Correct. And I would just stick that in front of a guitar cabinet. I'd get my condenser and my dynamic sound, and I never had to worry about any sort of phase or time issues because they were in perfect alignment. And I'll be honest, when I'd pull that up and it was a good-sounding guitar, all I'd end up with is a high pass and a low pass, and my guitar would be pretty much sorted. And in my opinion, that's the ideal channel, right? <laughs> I, I tried it on kick drum a ton. I tried a ton of AT mics. Uh, one of my favorites was the Artist Elite 3000, A3000. It's like a medium mm -hmm. diaphragm. 
And yeah. I tried that thing on everything. I actually put it on guitar for a little bit and then took it away because it was just a little bit too big of an element to have on that thing. Um, but yeah, the 2500, I, I tried it in kick drum so many times and I just took it out every night. And <laughs> I put it on a bass guitar cabinet. Mm-hmm. I like that. I mm-hmm. uh, actually put it on a, a baritone saxophone one night, which was really good. Um, and then I switched to doing it on guitar cabinets and lost cables until I couldn't use them anymore. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you ever, do you ever take the two mics and actually pan them out, or do you always keep them together? Um, uh, I I do I do, but it kind of <laughs> depends. I mean, it's it's mostly like if I don't have the option uh, to do something else, I guess I'll do that. But um, and this kind of goes back to the 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 analog thing. Um, I was I was mixing this band Escape the Fate a while ago. Uh, I call them Disney metal. That's probably offensive, but um, they're you know happy bleeped. pop version of metal. Yeah, you're gonna have to censor that out, right? But um, their guitar players, it was two of them. They'd go from rhythm to lead constantly, and and both of them would do leads. And um, this was this was a really cool time because we went and we sat in a rehearsal space for I think like two weeks maybe three weeks this is the most time i've ever spent with a metal band actually rehearsing i don't think i've ever seen a metal band rehearse like that or at least not one i've ever worked for but in those in that time we got something like 10 different amp heads and like four different cabinets and we just kept trying different things to be like which one of these works and we ended up finding one we had we had an angle uh, richie blackmore signature Damn, going through the angle cab insane it's amazing Truly amazing, but anyways, was, so I ended up with this double mic if thing. If the Bogner was... guys weren't so high, they'd make an ingle. Yeah, <laughs> I I don't disagree, man. <laughs> but we ended up with with this AE twenty five hundred on 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 the cab, and that was like the perfect rhythm sound. But I was in this spot where I didn't have like total digital control, where things I could auto pan or move things around that easily. So. I took a 57 and put it on one of the other speakers. And this cab had, had uh, vintage 30s and uh, 75s in it. So the 75 is a very like lead sounding speaker. It's very mid-rangey. The 30 is a little bit more kind of that scoop thing. So I had my double mic on the vintage 30 to make my rhythm guitar sound big. I also had a 57 on the, uh, the, 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 the Celestion 75. And then... When we needed to get that rhythm guitar into the center, my 57 was panned to the opposite side of the other two mics. So I'd push that up, and then the image of the whole thing would kind of move center. But I'd still have mega thick rhythm sound on one side, and then when we pulled it up and moved it towards the center, it was a little bit more mid-rangey, because we're just talking about a 57 on a, on a you know, Celestion 75. Yeah, that was my way of, of using the split of multiple mics on the same source to kind of pull it into the center. But, yeah, typically I don't actually do double mic a guitar and pan one left and pan right. Uh, it's too much of a variable in terms of how it sums depending on where you're standing sure. in the room. You know, if you're standing in the center, it might sound great. You just move a little off center, you're going to get this comb filtering thing. I'm not yeah. a huge fan of that. So, I always used to start straight up with my dynamic and move my other one in and in variance to the room, like you just said, and mm-hmm. in variance to bringing it back to the center into the parts where it needed to be the center. Um, yeah, makes sense. It, it, it was weird, though, and I, maybe you've experienced, too, the comb filtering when you're using um, 
emulation as well uh that happens repeatedly like you you'll find spots where it completely cuts out phase just by doing pans in mm -hmm. in emulation so it, it almost works the exact same way i just think it's a little bit more drastic with emulation than it is with a microphone yeah with some of the emulations the way they've kind of built their cabinet impulse responses do not necessarily always have the same distance if you will of the yeah. microphone to the speaker so you could you know set up a, an emulation through an amp sim where it's i don't know two heads going through two cabs they actually have different total time going through them so when you sum them together you've got that same kind of phasing that you might have had if you had two microphones that were spaced a little differently yep. uh, that's that's a tough thing but if you're really geeky about that stuff, certain companies that make cab emulations, like, uh, I don't know, Redwires is one that I know, every single one of their cab emulations has exactly the same total time. So in theory, you can use many of those and many amps, and they're all kind of in, in line, in phase. Well... Okay, go ahead, Chris. No, no, hold on. Sorry, one raising, more thing. He's raising his hand. Well, we we got we got to we got to make sure if we're doing a guitar episode, we have to round it off. So, okay. I, ISO cabs. Um, do you treat them how how differently do you treat them from a live cab? What um, size of the ISO cab make a difference? Like, what what's your experience with ISO cabs? <laughs> um, man, the really little ones I've never found sound that great. You know, the ones that are just basically one 12 inch speaker inside a box. To me it sounds like it's a speaker in a box. And I don't mean that like, you know, the cabinet itself, that is a speaker in a box, but like somehow you can hear the rest of the box around the microphone and it doesn't sound great to me. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why Marshall and Fender and didn't make boxes like that because the, you know, it's like it wasn't intended to be crammed into this tiny little thing. Yeah. I, I was on a tour though where we took basically... I think it was like a drum hardware case or something. So it's, you know, four or five feet long, four, three, three feet deep and three feet tall. We basically built a little frame and stuck a full 412 in it. Ouch. And that's at one end of it. Well, and then I, we... When I was at with Disturb, that's what we did. I mean, we had we had a full four by 10 in oh, like a couple of years. I was at with Disturb. I mean, that's how, yeah. how we did it. And at the and airport you know, you... with 27 pieces of gear and oh that's number God. 28. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. If you know, I mean, you know. I I never wanted to be the guy moving that thing on and off stage or wherever it was going. I remember when I was in a local band, for some reason I thought it was cool to have a cab in a road case, and that same road case also had the head and rack spaces in it. My God, it was like 400 pounds. <laughs> and I was yeah. a local band, so of course I was huffing it. <laughs> so we, we did a bunch of tours. Or I, I was always out with uh, the All-American Rejects guys, and they're really good guitar players, like, both of them had great techs, great guitar players. Like they were a fun show to watch. They got ISO cabs, um, and they couldn't go anywhere without them. And that was uh -oh. the problem with the ISO cab was, hey, we're playing with you guys tonight in Little Rock, and then we have to fly out to do Letterman, and we have to have ISO cabs because they're used to it. You know, you just plug in and go. That was the hardest thing about ISO cabs. Like, I understand the 12 inch in a box thing, it does sound like a 12 inch in a box. Um, yeah. but when the <clears throat> artist gets used to the ISO cab, that's when you're like, it's that 28th, 29th piece of gear at the, the airport that you do not want to move all the time. That yeah. thing is not conducive to going everywhere. Yeah, you know, the, the few times I've had to deal with, you know, the 12 inch in a box where you go, this sounds like it's in a box. The only way I've really been able to get around it is to just oversaturate the hell out of that channel. And somehow the feeling of this enclosed box 
turns into this feeling of saturation. And it, it, it seems to work. So if you have the ability to do that with your tools, it, it can make it feel less boxy and less gross, you know? And I think we should, there's a lot of, yeah, 12, a 12 inch sausage in a box. <laughs> hey, let's think, pump, let's pump his podcast, dude. Well, let's, I was going to say, you know, I mean, we, we've, let's pump this the is podcast. This certainly a lot of food for thought here, but, um, definitely want to say warm welcome to, to Ryan John's, uh, lifetime bootcast podcast. Yeah. Uh, live sound bootcast. What, what, is that what I said? <laughs> live sound. <laughs> Easy, Kyle. Li- I, live, it's crazy. Easy, Kyle. Live sound boot camp. Well, here, there we go. Ryan, do do a quick plug for what yeah. you've been doing, oh, and now that you're with the family. So yeah. Ah, uh, yeah. So so yeah. Um, live sound boot camp. It's a it's a podcast that uh, myself and two other engineers host, where we basically walk through the process, kind of from zero to hero. Yeah. <laughs> zero to Kyle. No, zero to Kyle. Zero to Kyle. There you go. On on zero, on zero every aspect of live sound, you know, and, and and it goes through all all the stupid stuff that's boring, from like writing a stage plot to like how to loop cables, all the way up to literally what we're talking about now. Things like you know mid side compression on guitars triggered from lead vocals and all sorts of crazy stuff. You know, hopefully it's interesting even for people that have been doing this for years because. Uh, we're funny people, or so we like to I, think. I think it's very yeah. interesting. So, <laughs> Welcome so to the everyone, family, dude. Yeah, oh, man. Yeah, well-deserved. Yeah, we're so glad Thanks to have so you. Yeah. And we definitely encourage everyone to go over, and I'm sure, Chris, we will put the link to Absolutely. Ryan's podcast in the description of this episode. So run over there, check out Live Sound Boot Camp podcast. I got it right that time. Ryan, as <laughs> always, thank you for joining us, man. It's always a pleasure to have you. No, or, thanks or, for or, having. Hold on, guys. we've had Ryan on so many times. We haven't asked him the 2020 question. Uh, I think. Uh-oh. All right, go ahead. Yeah, but Sorry, Michael but stole I, my I, answer I, I, from I know the 2020 it's, question. It's, I did. I already <laughs> answered. I pretty much already answered it. <laughs> it's past Michael's bedtime. He wants to. I know he wants to go to bed. I, you know. I'm man. slurring my words. I'm gonna get cranky, and I'm overdue for my snack. I never got to reach so, for so, anything so in arm, for arms different, different what? distance. Oh, different arms. <laughs> I, I got GI Joe characters from good, from Goodwill. Real right. American heroes. Hit him up with the legacy, Chris. Come on. All right, Ryan. So, if you could define your legacy, what would it be? You know, you know, Michael. Michael, I guess has stolen my answer from this, right? And That's my answer words. was, yeah, you know, <laughs> just you know, make but, people's lives better, right? But things have yeah. changed a little bit because now I work in product design and product management and stuff and being able to be a part of designing something that people use to create art is it's really, really cool, really exciting. And now I think my legacy has turned more to that than just, you know, being a good person, making people happy and making making those things better. I think... I want people to remember that some of the stuff I did enabled them to do a better job at creating something long-lasting. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. They used your I think that's brush. a pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. I think that's pretty cool. Signature like, paintbrush. Like, what what company made a, a you know Van Gogh's paintbrush and <laughs> yeah and his com- and his canvas put the plaster up for Michael. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I think I think that that's kind of a new and interesting one. I, I want to be able to empower people to do something really cool. There you go. That's awesome. So. Ryan, thank you, man. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. <laughs> <laughs>